and welcome to Let's Meet the Virologists, a podcast about the people behind today's virology headlines, people working to understand viruses and how they affect you. We are talking with students, postdocs, and other virologists so that you can learn who they are and what they do. I am Larissa Thackray, and I am hosting this podcast from America's Heartland in St. Louis, Missouri. On September 9th, 2022, we talked with Dylan McBride, a fellow at the U.S. Department of Agriculture's National Bio and Agro Defense Facility Scientist Training Program and a Ph.D. candidate in the Department of Veterinary Preventative Medicine, The Ohio State University, and Dr. Leonardo Caserta, a postdoctoral associate in the Department of Population Medicine and Diagnostic Science at Cornell University about their work on white-tailed deer as a reservoir for emerging and historical strains of SARS-CoV-2. Thanks for joining us today. Um, why don't you guys tell us a little bit about yourselves? Yeah, sure. So my name is uh, Leonardo Caserta. I'm originally from Brazil, and I, I did my graduation in veterinary medicine uh, in the State University of Sao Paulo. And then my master's and my PhD I did in the University of Campinas, also in the state of Sao Paulo, and always focused on, on virology. Initially, I was working mostly with uh, avian viruses, and, and then I started working with uh, wild animal viruses. And then while I was uh, finishing my PhD, I came to the United States to do my postdoc in Dr. Diego Dio's lab, initially in South Dakota, at South Dakota State University. And then we moved to Cornell University, where now I work with uh, mostly with sequencing of livestock viruses, but also uh, wild animal viruses, and and also uh, development of recombinant vaccines. Cool. Um, and uh, before we get into some of the science that we're going to talk about today, Dylan, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? So my name is is Dylan McBride, and it's super nice to meet you, uh, Leonardo. I'm a I'm a PhD candidate at the Ohio State University. Um, I started my bachelor's at Ohio State, uh, mostly interested in organismal biology, um, you know, ecology and and evolution. And I sort of stumbled my way into some undergraduate research that's more on just diseases, and I really found a lot of passion in, in disease ecology and the evolution of infectious diseases. And so when I finished up, I um, started my PhD there with Dr. Andy Bowman. And we really are um, kind of human animal interface specialists. So we're nested in the Department of Veterinary Preventive Medicine, and we focus on zoonotic diseases. And we do a good job um, really sort of narrowing in on where that interface is. So pre-pandemic and ongoing for my doctoral work, I focus a lot on influenza virus that transmits from pigs to people. Um, and of course, since the pandemic, we've been embroiled in the uh, SARS-CoV-2 work in white-tailed deer, a little bit of mink as well now, but that's sort of uh, where we find ourselves in the greater picture of that, uh, that public health scope. Cool. And I guess just to sort of let our listeners know, uh, why did people start looking white-tailed deer in the first place? So I know you know, in the beginning, people were kind of interested in, you know, the origins of SARS-CoV-2 and, you know, what animals other than humans were infected, but why white-tailed deer? It started with computer modeling of the ACE2, um, right? So very quickly, researchers identified that the, the ACE2 receptor seems to be what SARS-CoV-2 binds to. It happens to be pretty conserved across mammals. There's a lot of in silico work. 
Um, I know people point to the Damas at all paper kind of as the beginning. They basically, it's a little bit limited. They used a small binding region of the ACE2 receptor and identified some mammalian species that they thought might be susceptible. And then ongoing work with susceptibility. Um, I mean, Leonardo is a reason right they did some experimental work where they really showed how how efficiently they could be infected experimentally um there is also some usda work along those lines and then um the rick laboratory at k-state was all, also managed to do some experimental work along the way and so we had a, a project that was um funded internally basically just doing environment both environmental surveillance and animal surveillance and the idea of this virus seems to be a generalist, right? All of this precursor work is really showing that. Um, and so let's take a look and see what kind of animals we can find it in, domestic animals, zoo animals. It's also the project that sort of started our wastewater surveillance here in Columbus. And, and it included white-tailed deer, largely in part due to the, um, you know, the modeling of the ACE2 and the experimental work that really showed that there is a low transmission barrier there, right? They got infected, they shed it, they can spread deer to deer. And yeah, we, we had a lot of partners all over, lots of different divisions and other um, faculty members in our department that were helping us collect samples. And we were getting lots of them, lots of them in. And funny enough, when we finally found it, it was our last batch of samples. We were ready to tie the bow on the project and wrap it up. And we got our last 360 samples and 129 of them were infected with SARS-CoV-2. And here we are. Great. And Leonardo, what do you have to add for that? Why, why deer? Yeah, there is also the fact that uh, there are 30, the estimated white-tailed deer population in the North America is 30, 30 million animals. So it's a, it's a mammal in a, that has a large population. And because of hunting, uh, there are a lot of chances of contact between deer and humans. So it's always, always interesting to look for viruses in these kind of animals uh, that are always in contact with humans. And it's a very uh, adaptive animal. You can find in urban areas, in in uh, crops, in in the middle of the forest. So these these are these are animals that are that have large chances of uh, of acquiring human viruses. Right, right. So Leonardo, can you tell us some of your early work with the deer? Um, what what did you guys find? Yeah. So our group. Uh, uh, did experimental uh, did experiments with deer, infecting intranasal deers, uh, deer with uh, SARS-CoV-2, and we found that they will uh, shed virus during a, a short window of around five days, and but they don't they don't show clinical signs. Uh, it doesn't mean that they don't get sick. It don't it doesn't mean that they they're not having um, symptoms, but for, for animals, we see a clinical science, right? So uh, it's, difficult, it's difficult to see if an animal is, uh, is actually sick. But then, yeah, we found uh, that deer are very susceptible to SARS-CoV-2. And this was through an intranasal inoculation or how are you giving it to the deer? Yes. Is that the way that they're thought to naturally get infected um, intranasally or is it known? Uh, it's not very clear, but uh, they can get infected by uh, by baiting uh, because we know that uh, hunters bait deer, so they can get in, co in contact orally with, with SARS-CoV-2, but they can they can get in contact uh, with themselves by touching by touching noses by 
being physically close. So it's also possible they are also uh, get infected by uh, nasal contact. And do you know from your studies um, what tissues are actually infected in the deer? So where do you find the virus? Yeah, there is a, a large tropis of SARS-CoV-2 in deer, but are mostly in the respiratory tissues, uh, but, the, but also uh, nervous system. Uh, virus was found in nervous system. Uh, but SARS-CoV-2 can be found in, in a large number of organs in my tail deer. And then Dylan, can you talk a little bit about some of your work sort of showing um, how the virus was getting into the deer and then how the virus is actually, I guess, evolving in the deer and what that might make, you know, mean for sort of um, the chance of a, a new spillover from deer to humans? Sure. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I'd like, I want to echo what Leonardo said about, you know, deer as a reservoir species, right? What he said about distribution and abundance and as a generalist species too, especially, right? Like he said, um, using all sorts of environments. I mean, it's, it's such a good point when we're talking about wildlife reservoir establishment and, you know, tissue tropism too, right? He said all kinds of tissues and right, namely lymph nodes, which has allowed people to use like in his most recent preprint, um, chronic wasting disease samples, because they collect pharyngeal lymph nodes um, for those samples. And so really allowing us to use the strength of funding and, you know, programs that are already established to be able to get samples has been super critical for characterizing this system. Um, and, and yeah, it, it's a great point about exposure route. Um, I think it's, it's everybody's million dollar question at this point. Um, you know, Leonardo mentioned baiting. Interestingly enough, it's it's not legal to hunt over bait in all states, right? So there are are states where hunters aren't baiting deer. Um, likewise, um, we have so we have we have our, our our upcoming year of surveillance, right? Our our first initial discovery was really just in this like metropolitan park area, right? So we had nine reservations from within one park system, and then after that. Uh, everything sort of spiraled into a much bigger effort. Um, and so, so much like Leonardo's preprint and that, which I'm sure he'll talk about, we really went out to try to cover the state, right? Try to find as many counties as we can. We're collecting hunter killed deer, um, hunter harvested agency cold, right? So anywhere we're hunting is not, is not permitted. We have agencies that do population control. That first paper that you, you saw, that caused you to reach out to Andy, right? That was all agency cold deer, but now we have hunted deer uh -huh. as well. And so they're not, they're not all baited. Um, people say wastewater, right? Water runoff is a crowd favorite hypothesis, but nobody has really been able to isolate SARS-CoV-2 in wastewater. So that poses a, an issue. We've heard intermediate species, people think maybe rodents or, or bats, but then you have to explain an interface of, of, rodents and deer and then rodents and people as well, which is not exactly an, an easier causal pathway to explain. Um, contaminated trash, contaminated bait is a, is a possibility. Fact of the matter is, is, is we actually don't quite know. So our most recent year of, of data, we collected 15, 1500 nasal swabs from 83 of Ohio's 88 counties. And I think we detected 30, 32 in, independent introductions based on sequence, right? And so it's only in like three months and we have 32 introductions from people to deer based on the sequences we can see. And so not only is this exposure route 
apparently happening, right? It, it exists. The barrier is low, but it, it also seems to be everywhere, right? It's, it's all over the state. Um, I think USDA has it in 26 states now as well, right? 26 states across the United States. And so it's everywhere. It's all over the country. It's in urban centers and rural areas. And nobody really has any super solid ideas of how deer are actually actually getting it from people. Right. Is it um, viremic in deer? So when we always think with like flaviviruses, we always think about ticks and deer and things like that. Is it possible that it could be transmitted by ticks? Um, that's a good question. I'm not, I'm not sure if anybody has really, is really checked. Um, I'm, I'm personally not super well-versed in arboviruses, but I know that there's a little bit of distinguishment between infected blood in a tick versus a tick that is actually infected. Right. So some, some pathogens have a life cycle in the tick. Um, I don't know. I, we haven't tested blood samples virologically. We did collect some for USDA's larger nationwide project. I think they're doing like, you know, antibody surveillance, right? They're looking at zero prevalence. Um, but I don't, we're collecting them on filter strips, right? So we, it's, we're for sure desiccating any viral RNA that might be there. What do you think, Leonardo? What's your favorite or what, what's your favorite hypothesis? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, my initial thought was, uh, also wastewater, but then it started to become clear that wastewater is not so easy to find infectious virus in wastewater, right. like Dylan said. So, uh, the, the most prob probable route is human, not their in indirect contact between human and deer, uh, but it's not clear uh, which one. Uh, but I think it's something that will soon will become clear. I think it's a, it's a recent topic, so it is something that uh, requires more study. Right. And we have, uh, we have, we're having a better idea anytime soon. Right. And your recent preprint, I was very interested about how you were finding sort of the deer are not just a reservoir of virus, but they're a reservoir of almost like extinct viruses. Can you describe that work a little bit? Yeah, it's very interesting. So we also used uh, samples that were collected for chronic wasting disease surveillance. Uh, more than 2,000 samples in, 2000, in the hunting season of 2020. And then also more than 2,000 samples uh, from the hunting season of 2021, and, and basically the virus was found all over the state, all over the state, in 57 out of 62 counties in the state of New York, and it was very interesting to find, especially for for the gamma variant. Gamma was uh, had a very low prevalence in the United States, and also in New York State. But we found a, a, a cluster of gamma variant in, in one county, county uh, Allegheny County, in the south part of the state. And it's, it's pretty interesting to find that because it's a virus that is known circulating any, that is not circulating anymore in humans, uh, or maybe very extremely sporadic findings in humans, and also alpha variant and delta variant. Delta was still circulating recently, so it's not a, a huge surprise that we would find this virus in deer, knowing that uh, deer can be infected by SARS-CoV-2. But alpha, uh, there were, I think, very few sporadic detections in humans in October last year, in August, 
but the peak of detection of alpha in humans was uh, during, uh, I think, between between April April and June uh, last year. Yeah. But this this variant was found very uh, uh, spread across the state. So it's uh, so there is a not only reservoir for SARS-CoV-2, but there we show that they are reservoir for nearly extinct variants. So how do you think that's happening? Is it just that there's not um, almost like the evolutionary pressure in the deer? I guess you could sort of argue in a way that in humans, the new, the new variants are chasing out the old variants as it were, um, or just everyone's getting infected. And so basically there's immunity to that variant. So what does it mean that deer are actually harboring these sort of older, more ancestral strains or continuing to harbor them? What does that mean? Yeah, so probably, probably uh, there's as, as soon as the pandemic started, as soon as there was a a broad circulation of this virus in humans, deer started to get infected by SARS-CoV-2. And, and then because of the because of the large deer population, uh, they there was a transmission from deer to deer. And this variance became became established. So of course there, there was some uh, containment measures in humans, but it's totally impossible in deer. So uh, they just keep doing their uh, natural behavior so this all of, all of this initial variants not only uh alpha and gamma but the, those initial variants the b1 like variants they are still present in deer so uh because it's because of the large population and the impossibility of virus containment in these animals because of the natural behavior uh they, this this variants keep circulating deer i see and Dylan, so your work kind of showed, though, that there definitely is evolution of the virus. So you're getting amino acid substitutions in the viruses that are circulating in the deer. So um, what does that mean for sort of potential spillover or back spillover or this kind of a thing? Sure. So it's a it's a great it's a great point. And I really like what what Leonardo said about um, you know, persistence, right? It's very difficult to control deer to deer transmission in a wild population, especially with so many deer. And I think it really lends to the point of, we really are right at the, the beginning of this, right? We're still seeing all these fresh spillovers, but we haven't really had the longitudinal time yet to really see if one of these is going to be the one that establishes in deer. And you start to see that like, five, six, seven, eight, 10 year, decade long persistence of a true deer origin lineage, right? So we don't have multiple years of evolution in a deer yet. We still have all of these introductions and just why, you know, we're seeing Delta, we're seeing Omicron, like this flavor of the month style spillover, but we're also seeing some of these select, select older ones and they are evolving, right? I mean, branch lengths, are long, right? When you look at the phylogeny, the branches are really long. They're very clearly distinct from the human precursor viruses. We have not identified any potential zoonotic events, any spillback into humans yet. In our sequences, there was a preprint out of Canada that had sequence homology that potentially pointed to maybe one human case, um, you know, a human sequence that existed at the end of an extremely long deer branch, which is the first limited evidence of possibly a spillback into humans, but no real evidence of 
onward human to human transmission. Um, we do have some work that we're, we're working very hard to get compiled and to get out soon. I think we all know the struggles of, of trying to, to publish collaborative research. Um, we have a cross-institutional collaboration where we did take some of our deer viruses and isolated them and took a look at true spillback risk, um, some in vitro and in vivo work, serum neutralization from hamsters, uh, hamsters vaccinated with human precursor Delta, or sorry, not vaccinated, hamsters inoculated with human precursor Delta, human precursor Alpha, as well as um, like the Pfizer strain mRNA vaccine, right? And so testing serum neutralization from those different right? Anti-serous against our dear origin alphas, our dear origin deltas, um, and, and seeing how that does. And then as well as in vivo work, right? Hamsters that are truly just fat vaccinated with the Pfizer vaccine and then challenging them with a dear origin virus. And oh. with a couple of exceptions, right. And we're still working on getting it together. It does for the most part, look like there's not like for, it doesn't there in many cases, the replication kinetics are actually worse in human cell lines compared to the, the human precursor viruses, there's not a huge risk. There's not any of our deer viruses that seem to be super immune escapee or anything like that just yet. But just yet, I think is, is the key there. The branch lengths are long, which means these viruses are changing with time. They're evolving independently and in parallel to a human outbreak, right? So you have this backdoor evolutionary pathway mm-hmm. for new changes. And, and even though it doesn't seem to be super risky right now, I think the real risk is establishment. It seems to be a, a COVID in, in 10 years problem, less than a COVID in, in 10 months problem. And we're working really hard to, to try to address that. We did see some select amino acid changes. It seems to be evolving, but not under super aggressive selection pressure. And I think that the number of spillover events that we see in all of these variants spilling back combined, like when you look at the evidence holistically, it really points to the interspecies transmission barrier must be so, so low because it's happening so much. We're not seeing any really specific, unique mutations that are precursors to spill over into deer, nor any really aggressive selection pressure once it's in deer and transmitting deer to deer. So it seems like that barrier is just so, so close, which could point to it being risky in the future if spillback is also just as easy with such a low barrier. Right, right. And kind of think, has there been in deer at least sort of a parallel of another virus or um, pathogen that um, was sort of spreading? And how long did it take to basically spread, you know, throughout the deer population in North America? Is there any sort of modern parallel to this? You know, there's there's epizootic hemorrhagic disease virus and blue tongue virus that cause like really high mortality in white-tailed deer, but it's, it's so high mortality that I I don't know, you know, we were talking about a a virus that for the most part infects subclinically, like Leonardo said. So I don't, I don't know how parallel it is. Um, you know, USDA has been fighting the brucellosis and bovine tuberculosis fight for decades now, and white-tailed deer still pose as a challenging reservoir for that, right? There's still sporadic spillover into domestic animals. There are still cattle outbreaks, linked to white-tailed deer in those little pockets of TB and tuberculosis and cervids in North America. So I, I don't know about how long it would take to rip through a North American deer population or, or what the reinfection risk is going to look like. I don't know if Leonardo has experimental work upcoming on, on deer reinfection. I know these deer transmission studies are hard. Yeah, that was actually my question. Do you know 
like, is there any immunity or are, can you actually, can the deer be reinfected again and again? Yeah, I think this is something to be tested. Uh, this is probably, some, probably something that we we're going to look at, uh, but it's also not, not so clear right now. But it's definitely something that we, we must look into. Yeah. And I guess um, sort of following up on that is um, why do you think, as Dylan was saying, the, the infection is relatively asymptomatic? So, you know, in humans, obviously, there's a huge range of disease. So people that are truly asymptomatic to people that are, you know, dying. So there's an enormous range. Um, why are we not seeing that in deer? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I'm not, uh, I've heard say, to say that I'm not so sure. Does the virus not replicate to high titer in the deer or is there some other deer immunity? I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I almost have a hunch that it's just a, it could, you know, I certainly don't know from a, from a biological standpoint, but you know, at least from a statistical standpoint, it might just be a sample size problem, right? I mean, we see people all the time. We live with people. We see them get sick. We see them get hospitalized. I know that this experimental deer work is hard. I know that it is expensive. Um, you know, Connor Cool, who was with the K-State group, talked about challenges posed by doing, you know, respiratory disease evaluation because the deer are so twitchy in, in experimental rooms, right? It's hard to count respiratory rate because they're hard, they're hard to look at. They, and in the wild hunters aren't coming in saying, yeah, this deer was sick for sure. But humans also don't spend a ton of time staring at wild deer. There's, there's 30 million of them in the u.s and we're really only seeing such a small snapshot of that and so it, it might just be an accessibility thing i'm not sure yeah there is also because humans we we express like uh, humans have symptoms but animals we're not sure if the the deer are having any like uh, we're not sure if deer have symptoms because they're not expressing that right. and we also have to remember that deers the deer are prey they are animals that are hunted by naturally. They were hunted by wolves, by cougars, by uh, bobcats, small deer. So they are prey animals. They, they cannot show signs of disease. It's mm. not natural. They, it's, it's part of their evolution. So like Dylan said, it may also be a problem of uh, sample size. So I guess, um, what's next? So Leonardo, what are the next questions that you are addressing in this ongoing, I guess, um, zoonotic infection now with uh, SARS-CoV-2 in deer? Yeah, uh, there's the thing that I'm most curious about right now is to see what will be the outcomes of this current hunting season. Hmm. Uh, we want to see if these variants that we found are still present mm -hmm. and if they have spread it to, to other counties, uh, if some of these variants are became more established than others, uh, mm -hmm. alpha, gamma, or delta, and also if the initial lineages, if the B1 like lineages also spread, because we found uh, very few sequences in the in the last hunting season. Uh, but then, yeah, this is this is the thing that uh, I'm most curious about right now to see how these variants are going to spread not only in New York state, but in the other states where uh, SARS-CoV-2 was detected in deer. 
Right. I mean, because at least in mouse models, the Omicron variants didn't do so well. So they were they were much more attenuated um, than potentially in humans. Um, and so you kind of wonder, maybe they're not as fit as it were. They won't spread as much in, in deer themselves. Um, Dylan, what about you? What's what's next? Yeah, well, first of all, you raise a great point about upcoming variants, right? The fitness landscape in a human population that's largely vaccinated is so different than than what we might see in a wild deer population. So it's a it's a great point in that as we move into establishment in both humans and deer, the, that fitness landscape is really going to start to diverge, I think. Um, and yeah, like Leonardo said, with passing time, as we get to that establishment, I think there's so many great, great questions, right? When we started looking at our sequences from this past season, right? It's like, do we have the ones we found in the first detection? Like, do we have more viruses from these clades, right? We, we didn't, but that was the big question. And it's sort of points to this still sporadic nature of the spillovers. Um, looking at which of these are really going to hang on is, is a huge question. And I think time is going to have to be the, the, the true tell for that. Um, you know, on, on top of that, I think talking about, um, obviously everyone wants to know how they're getting it. That's a huge, a huge question. And, and also seasonality dynamics, right? I think largely, even though wildlife are hard to sample white-tailed deer are, are are truly one of the most accessible wildlife species because mm -hmm. there's a lot of population control programs and quite frankly, people love hunting them. Right. And so a lot of these samples, I would argue maybe even all of these samples so far are really dependent on the hunting season, because that's when these cull programs and hunters are going out and taking, taking deer. Mm -hmm. It also corresponds with post peak mating season for deer, right? Because they go into this rut and they're more active. And so that's why that's when they're easier to hunt. But if they have this potentially drastically different contact structure associated with their mating season, and then post is that inflating the maintenance prevalence that we're detecting after that, right? So what does prevalence look like in white-tailed deer in June? I certainly don't know. And it's a very difficult question to answer, but year round surveillance is something that is important in all wildlife reservoir species. It's unfortunately a really difficult gap to bridge. It highlights the challenges of surveillance and surveillance is also happens to be really difficult to get funded in a modern funding landscape, right? A lot of funding agencies, there's been this move to hypothesis driven science and a lot of basic science, which is, is awesome. And it answers really great questions, but surveillance from a public health perspective is really important. And unfortunately, in a lot of animal species, it's pretty, it can get pretty expensive and it can be difficult to get funded if you don't have a very specific research aim. So I think the establishment of this field and, and trying to bridge all those gaps and answer those questions is going to be important in the coming years. Right, right. And um, Leonardo, so what's next for you scientifically? Um, what, what is, the, I guess, the next step in your, in your scientific path? Yeah, so now, uh, right now I'm a research associate at the Animal Health Diagnostic Center in Cornell University. So uh, I'll be naturally working with uh, wild animal samples whenever they come to the to the laboratory. Uh, that, that I'm really interest, interested about uh, metagenomic sequencing. I think this is one of the best tools to mm -hmm. detect viruses, uh, untargeted 
detection of viruses. So I, I really get, I really want to get deeper into that field, into a broader virus detection in in wild animals. And how do you, so I guess we, I was, we were talking on the podcast last time with um, people that were doing sort of air and wastewater surveillance. How do you do metagenomic sequencing in sort of wild animals? How do you, what's the sort of methodology or how do you, how do you get those samples? Yeah, the easiest way of getting samples is when animals die naturally or they're hunted. Mm. Uh, but then there's something is not really uh, common to be used is non-invasive sampling mm -hmm. uh, and I think this is something that must be this is one of the this is one of the ways to get samples from white animals then we have the bottleneck of sample quality mm -hmm. because samples would be exposed to the natural conditions and but this it's very like Dylan said it's very challenging to obtain samples from white animals and Dylan so what's next for you um, so, so I'm a, I'm actually a fellow in the NSTP program, which is the, uh, national bio agro defense facility. Um, it's the, the new, the brand spanking new USDA facility they're, they're building in Manhattan, Kansas. Um, and so they've created this scientific training program to recruit, uh, terminal graduate students to fill expertise gaps when they open that, that new facility. And so I, um, I, I, most of my at least the last couple of years, my my graduate education has been supported by that fellowship, which is really awesome from USDA APHIS. And so that'll see me out to the um, the Foreign Animal Disease Diagnostic Lab for full-time work once I finish. So I'll be working a little bit more on the animal side um, compared to the public health side right now, but because it's a BSL-4 level facility, they've added a lot of zoonoses to their um, the APHIS mission statement and things like that. And so I will you know, I look forward to still working from a, a one health perspective, but taking a look at, um, you know, transboundary and emerging animal diseases. Um, so I'll be headed to the government sector, a little bit of public service in, in my future, but I, um, you know, I look forward to, to being able to do a lot of applied problem solving. I think that's one of the, the real strengths of working in government. Um, I love research, but I think, you know, using the scientific process to, to do more applied problem solving, I think sounds really cool. And so it's not something I have a lot of experience with right now, but I look forward to, uh, to heading out there. Right. And then I guess just to finish up, um, I'd like to ask people sort of how they first became interested in science and virology. Is there a particular teacher or moment or something that kind of started you off on the path that you're on now? Leonardo, why don't you take that? Yeah, for me, I think uh, one thing leads to the other. So since I was born, since as I remember as a human being, I was interested. I, I, I always liked animals, especially wild animals. So, so from, from wild animals, I got into veterinary. And then, and I also, I always liked uh, birds in special. I'm nowadays, I'm still uh, considering myself a bird watcher. So mm -hmm. from poultry, I got into vaccine viruses and then from this from the vaccine i i, I really found interesting the vaccination poultry industry industry uh -huh. so from that i got into virology and, and then from that in virology I, I got really interested about next generation sequencing and, and metagenomic analysis cool great and dylan how about you how did you first sort of 
start going down this path? First of all, I love that Leonardo is a bird watcher because I'm a I'm a birder myself. I'm a huge I'm a huge fan. I just got a magnet on my fridge that says bird nerd on it. So I um I I also love birds. Um much like Leonardo, just like really into animals as a kid. Um, you know, I always loved the zoo. I had was a fan of all of our, our pets in the house growing up. And just a very curious child. I'm an I'm an answer seeker. Um, you know, so uh, at the growing up, I don't have academic parents, and so it took me a little bit to sort of navigate the waters of graduate school. You know, like it's you hear scientists as a word or like researchers. You know, in the in the public, but it's it's not super clear for somebody not in academia what that means or all of the different ways you can actually do science. And so it took me a little bit of time to navigate that. I would say, shout out, you said a teacher, I'm going to shout out my AP bio teacher from my high school, um, Miss Climber Smith. So I'm from New Jersey originally, and I always liked animals. I always knew that I liked science. And so I, I took a lot of the more advanced bio classes, uh, Mr. Hausman, anatomy, anatomy and physiology at my high school. And she really did an awesome job, Miss Climbersmith, of like kind of letting us foster scientific curiosity in a, a more free way. Like as a senior in high school, we had a couple of of projects that were true, like ask a scientific question, like how do you want to answer it? And as a 17 year old kid, like that was that was really cool for me. And I think it really sparked something for me that that led me down a path where then selecting universities I wanted to go to, like having accessible undergraduate research opportunities was like top of my list. It was something I definitely wanted to do when I got to college. And so when I got there, I got engaged in undergraduate research really quickly and just really found that I, I loved it. I loved it a lot more than some of the like clinical medicine experiences I had had before. And so it was a super clear arrow pointing me towards this sort of research path. Um, I had you know plenty of great professors in, in college. Dr. Aaron Lindstedt did a really good job of shepherding me along my way and helping me figure out how to apply to grad school and find an advisor and, and things like that. So it's, it's, it's just honestly just been super fun. Well, thanks so much for talking to us about white-tailed deer and SARS-CoV-2 um, and a little bit about yourself as well. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. Thank you. This has been Let's Meet the Virologist, a podcast about people who study viruses. This is your host, Larissa Thackeray, and thanks for listening. You can find us on Google, Apple, Amazon Music, and other podcast providers or at lmtv.podbean.com. Mm-hmm.